Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to one of our very first sort of bonus content podcasts. This is Rick Wagner here. Of course, we're getting it right here, but also we're trying to talk about uh, things that uh, aren't talked about all the time on the regular media so that we can put some things in some context to make people think about things. And today, what I wanted to talk about is the question, is North Korea becoming Russia's Cuba? Now, many of you may remember that during the time of the Soviet Union, and there's not been a lot of change, even with the name, that Cuba was supported almost entirely for a long period of time by the Soviet Union, buying their sugar and a few things like that, as well as direct subsidies. So Fidel Castro regime certainly had a vested interest in keeping the Soviet Union happy. And the Soviet Union was very pleased to have a communist country right 90 miles off the coast of the United States and also so that it could influence things in Central America. So during the 70s and 80s, especially, the Cubans became involved in all sorts of things that were not even particularly geographically close. Many of them aligned with Soviet foreign policy of destabilization, and especially with trying to cause issues in Africa and you know get some regimes in Africa to be, or were thought to be friendly to the Soviets. The first one, and some of you maybe remember with the Angolan Civil War, the Cubans sent around 25,000 troops to support the one group. There was the, this was the sort of, uh, alphabet group, the, uh, well, all of our alphabet groups, the MPLA against the rival factions like UNITA and FNLA, which were backed by the United States and South Africa. So the MPLA was backed by the Soviet Union and Cuba. And of course, Cuba ended up with 25,000 troops sent to Africa, Angola, <laughs> not exactly in their backyard or anything that would particularly have, what's the benefit to Cuba, right? Well, of course, they like to spread the revolution, but more to the point is they wanted to keep on the good side of the Soviet Union and also probably received something that we'll never know exactly what it was for the Soviets, probably increased subsidies and things like that. Castro undoubtedly saw Angola part of that global struggle he has against imperialism and colonialism, as he thought it was. But it completely aligned with the idea of what was going on in the minds of the Soviet Union, which at this time was the idea that just destabilizing governments was a good idea. Because their thought was that if you destabilized governments, that they would crash and then the people, the proletariat, whatever, would arise. Now, this wasn't like some idea that they just wanted to have in the back of their head and just watch it happen. No. What they wanted to do is have that happen, and then they would, of course, quickly move in with advisors and helpers and do all sorts of things, frankly, that the Chinese have kind of been doing lately, only they're a little more sly about it. If they did that, they could have more regimes aligned with them in Africa, which they thought was not a bad idea. They thought destabilization could happen there pretty quickly, and you could tell by the various factions that things were not going particularly well there. So they were there for quite some time. Now, there's another war in Africa that took place during the same time where the Cubans got involved to be hest of the Soviets. There was the Ogaden War between Ethiopia and Somalia. The Cubans played a pretty decisive role there because, as you know, the military in those places, even in the 80s, not particularly effective as some trained troops from Cuba were. Trained troops from Cuba were, in fact, 
uh, pretty good troops. They had uh, good armament. They were armed by the Soviet Union. They had good equipment, and they were well supplied as well as logistically, partly once again because of the Soviet Union. Now, there was a there was a regime that was socialist called the Derg regime in Ethiopia, very much an ally and fit very neatly into the ideas of Cuba and the Soviet Union. But, you know, there was there was more to that once again, they, at least what Castro said. Castro said, well, it's important to expand socialism and sort of, you know, release the oppressed from all of this, you know, all kinds of stuff. But we all know that it was something to do with getting his prestige high and then working for the Soviets. Frankly, the Cuban economy didn't have any kind of money available to be able to project force like that without significant help from the Soviet Union. Now, when you get back in our own backyard here, you'll remember Nicaragua. The Cuban advisors and troops supported the Sandinistas down there in the Reagan administration. Of course, the Contras, as we know, were backed by the United States. The support for the Sandinistas is a direct challenge to U.S. foreign policy. That's part of the reason the Cubans did it. And, of course, they're helped along by support from the Soviet Union. To do this, I mean, what better way to destabilize the United States during this time than to have sorts of problems in Central America, particularly with the Monroe Doctrine? Remember, the Monroe Doctrine was Central America, the United States, this whole area was uh, our backyard, and incursions into it was, in fact, our business. So this was a way of trying to draw us into something. As you know, with uh, President Reagan, we became involved in shipping things down there. There was a whole Iran-Contra affair that was very interesting kind of uh, triangulation, but the Cuban involvement in all of this is just all very interesting. And the reason I wanted to say is North Korea becoming Cuba is think about what's happening now. Now, this week, Kim Jong-un is taking his train to meet Vladimir Putin. Now, you know, Kim doesn't like to fly. Uh, What I have heard is that he doesn't want to fly because he's afraid someone would shoot him down. So he travels in a heavily armored train with troops on board and, of course, all that little stuff that the, uh, the little round dictator there wants to have with him to make his life enjoyable while the rest of his people suffer really badly. But he doesn't have much money. And the money he has in that country, the resources he has, he's been putting into the military. And the country is just not in great shape. So think about it this way. The Russians would like to have some more troops especially with this thing that's going on, of course, in Ukraine. They also want some more equipment. What is the only thing that North Korea has of anything? A surfeit. Military equipment, soldiers. What do they need? Food. A little bit of money. You know, those kinds of things can be exchanged easily with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union does, well, sorry, Russia does not have a lack of food right now, especially. They still are producing a lot of that. They also are producing a lot of oil, which can get sent to North Korea. But also, they can send them a little money, although they're a little thin on money themselves right now. But they can provide a lot of things that will support the regime in North Korea. And so they can get the surrogate from the North Koreans to help them with armaments and personnel, if necessary. Now, this whole idea of surrogate wars has been going on for a long time. I mean, really, throughout a lot of human history, you back somebody, maybe the rebels, maybe this side, that side. We, you know, we all know that. But it really became sort of an art form 
in the 70s and 80s with all of these things popping up all over the all over the globe and groups being supported by one side or the other. I mean, look at Vietnam. Vietnam, in many ways, was a proxy war against the United States almost directly. You think the Vietnamese were going to go very far if it weren't for the support of the Chai Coms, or as we say, the Chinese, the Red Chinese. That's a better way to put it. And to some extent, the Soviets at the time. Tremendous amounts of money and arms were shipped into Vietnam. I mean, they originally were supporting them because they would like to have that whole sector of what we would call the rice bowl, which is what it is. It is a very necessary part of raising rice and some other foodstuffs that helps China. They thought it would be a great idea if they ran the governments down there. We, of course, thought we could have the domino theory. Remember that. Things, if we let Vietnam fall, and this is what I talked about on the radio show last week, then we have all the other things that are going to come into play as well. So we get involved in there. In the meantime, the Soviets are helping with some naval stuff, and the Chinese, this is before the Chinese had a navy bigger than ours, uh, the Chinese are funneling all sorts of arms equipment and all just anything, food stuff so that they might have that could be used in the theater. And, of course, part of it was coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that was uh, not all of it. it was in Vietnam, was it? It was in Cambodia. So that was a very similar thing. It just lasted a lot longer, except that in having the two proxies, we started out with South Vietnam. They started with North Vietnam. But eventually, we was over there fighting ourselves. And, of course, people worried that what might happen if we began to really destroy North Vietnam, if China would get involved, like it did in Korea, Remember when we were just getting ready to uh, really thump the North Koreans, the Chinese came across the Yalu River, and that was a big problem. And so many were afraid of that. So these proxy wars keep going on all the time. But it would be interesting to see how the North Koreans sort of symbiotically cleave to the Russians. Because it's pretty good partnership, if you think about it. They have a lot of things they're not using. They're just making them and threatening everybody with them. Russians need some of that stuff, and they sort of need people to. North Koreans can be pretty tough fighters, and they have a lot of military equipment because they don't spend any money on food or any of that frivolous stuff over there. But they need some, so Soviet Union has a lot of that, some oil, a little bit of money. All of a sudden, you have an axis there that includes Russia. I keep saying Soviet Union. I'm sorry. I, don't, I cannot get that out of my head. Soviet Union. Jeez. I like it better than Russia for some reason. Russia, China, and then North Korea. I mean, it's not exactly equals, but the Chinese are rapidly seeing Russia as a junior partner. And Russia is seeing North Korea, I think, as a possible junior partner slash kind of puppet, maybe, because Kim Jong has really been at the mercy of the Chinese a lot. I think the Russians like to get in there, too, and uh, pull some strings, things they need. So keep an eye on that. I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see the uh, interactions between the Russians and North Koreans. It doesn't get reported a whole lot. I mean, we're getting some now because they're going to have this meeting, but I think it won't be very long before we start seeing North Korean munitions in the theater in Ukraine, and then maybe actually North Korean troops. I up for that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again.